Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. you may also like a show about the things you may also like things like live like a local Alice and Shane was traveling in Thailand and Japan around the same time I was traveling through Spain we both went away for multiple months and managed our businesses remotely she and her husband John follow a similar travel philosophy live like a local Now, many of the people we know jet off to resorts and do nothing. Then there are the cruise losers. I see that as a form of smash-and-grab tourism. The ship docks, people get off the boat and grab things, leave behind their tummy flu viruses, get back on the boat, and repeat in another port of call. Anyhow, Allison and I are going to swap stories on how to travel and live like a local. The best way to approach it is to talk about the lack of empowerment that a lot of people have when it comes to choosing a vacation and how our society frames what a vacation is. And I get the sense that it's a very North American thing. It seems like from talking to folks while we were on vacation who were from other Asian countries, traveling to other Asian countries, that it's about seeing historical sites, eating the food. You know, yes, maybe you're staying in a hotel, but you're staying in the city proper or whatever have you versus the North American idea that a lot of us have of a vacation, which is, I want to unplug from my life. I don't want to have to think about anything. I just want to go and get day drunk next to a pool or in a pool next to the ocean. You know what I mean? Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, I guess we are looking to just kind of unplug all the time when we do that. But tell me about the trip that you took. When did it start? Where did you go? And when did you come back? Oh my goodness. So we left in mid-January. We went to Thailand, Cambodia, Vietnam, and Japan. We spent just shy of a month in Thailand, about a week and a half in Cambodia, a couple of weeks in Vietnam, and then about a month in Japan. We got back, I believe, on March 29th. So we've gone quite a while. And so what are you looking to do when you go away? It sounds like food is definitely involved by the looks of your Instagram and as well visiting places. Yeah, the big thing for me is I'm very interested in being immersed in a culture that's different than mine. I live in Canada. I'm very familiar with what my culture is like. As you alluded to, food is a very big part of my identity. I love cooking. I love experimenting with different cuisines in the kitchen. And when I go on vacation, I'm always looking for the best spots to eat authentic food in the places that we go. So 
Asian food is one of those, like it's hard to find the right ingredients here. And my take on it isn't going to be the same as like a Thai or Vietnamese restaurant here. But even that is going to be different than what you get over in Thailand or Vietnam as an example. So that's a big motivator for me is eating. I also scuba dive. So going to places where I can dive and check out interesting, you know, coral formations or different types of fish is a big one. And just history, culture. You know, in North America, we don't have a lot of the same older. I mean, I haven't been to Europe yet. I'm sure we can talk about your Europe trip if you want and all the amazing food you ate. But that's a big part of it for me as well, is I want to go to check out temples. I want to see the ruins of civilizations that came before us and experience things that I can't get in Canada. You know, like there just isn't that here. And I feel very fortunate to be able to go away and to be able to have those experiences. And those all are kind of things that encompass where I think about where I want to go when I look at going on vacation. So the word vacation, where we're from, we're in Western Canada. It seems that the crown jewel of those vacations is to go to Mexico, go into a resort, stay in the resort, get shit-faced, go home. Yeah, that seems to be the MO for a lot of folks. And I'll be honest with you, I have never wanted to go to a resort. This might be offensive to some people, but I really think of resorts as like daycares for grownups. You know, like you show up, you don't have to think about anything. Your bed gets made for you. Your room gets cleaned for you. Your food's taken care of. You know, your drinks are taken care of. We actually got married on an island in Belize, Key Cocker. It's about 45 minutes off the coast of Belize. And Key Cocker is like about as close to a resort as you can get without going on a resort. The island is just tourism. It's just fishing, ecotourism, snorkeling, scuba, boats, whatever. But that's all it exists for, really. It's just for tourists. And when I say it's like almost a resort, in the sense that it's just the locals who are there to help you have a good time and other tourists. My husband and I thought that that would be a good water wings for a lot of our family members who haven't traveled outside of Canada and were nervous about going somewhere that wasn't a resort, regardless of the country the resort was located in. And one of our buddies, after the fact, turned around to us and he was like, yeah, you know, like, Key Cocker was pretty great and all, but really sucked having to carry my wallet around all day. Like, really? That's your indication of whether or not you're having a good time on your vacation is like, you have to manage your own shit. <laughs> But I think, you know, like I said at the start, a lot of people, when they think about what a vacation is to them, is not thinking. It's just shutting off your brain and just like sinking down into like an amoeba state, you know, where just everything is taken care of for you. And maybe that vibes with some folks, but it has never been something that's interested me in any capacity at all from a personal perspective, not to mention the ecological and the social aspect of it, right? Like I'm sure we'll talk about that. Yeah, well, there's a huge trickle-down effect when you go to just sit at a resort. And sometimes I'll ask people and I say, tell me about the people you met. And they just talk about the staff that they met, really, at the resort. But there is, I mean, that money that you spend at the vacation goes to a large corporation. It does not go to help out the place where you visited. Yep. And that's one of the things that really bothers me about resort culture in particular I remember when we took our first trip, we went, my boyfriend at the time, husband now, we went to Mexico, Belize, and Guatemala. And we just stayed at Airbnbs the entire time. And I remember talking to some locals in Belize about how resorts were starting to open up in the country. And their perspective on it was, it's great that 
you know, some outside money is coming in, but it's basically just a black hole of money that then gets taken out of Belize. As you said, these companies are generally not locally owned. They're usually international conglomerates or in a lot of cases, they're in the States. And in some cases, they do provide a little bit of employment, but that's not meaningful employment in the community. You have to go, you have to live on the resort. The people who work there are separated from their friends and their family. And one of the things that I've heard from folks in those communities where resorts have started to pop up and provide opportunities for employment is that they showcase their culture in a way that doesn't feel respectful. You know, but when you work at a resort, that's your job. You don't get to decide whether or not you're participating in like the big fire show. It's just part of what you're doing there, right? So yes, you are glimpsing part of someone's culture, but you're not really interfacing with it in a meaningful sense. It's just consumerism applied to it in a different context. You know, there's a lot of negatives to resorts beyond just like on a personal level, you know, what travel can do for a person. But yeah, it's definitely not great. Yeah, and shout out to all the steel drums in all the Caribbean nations. And the only place you ever find the steel drums are at the resort. Yeah. And I mean, I can definitely say I saw some great cultural moments in Vietnam, especially. There is a crazy amount of busking, tons of that. I mean, everywhere, but like Vietnam and Japan really stood out. There's a lot of busking, people singing on street corners, dancing, doing tricks and things like that. So if you want to see parts of people's culture, there are opportunities to do that. That don't involve staying in a, like on a compound, basically, because that's what you're doing, right? Like you're in a compound separate from everything else. And, you know, I've had people say to me, well, like, oh, you know, you can book a tour through the resort. And yeah, you can. You're going to be paying top dollar for that. And you don't have the option. Like I know a bunch of people who live in Mexico and work with resorts in various capacities, whether that's photographers or tour guides and things like that. And the resorts make the choices. Same with a cruise. When you go on shore, if you want to take a tour, they've already decided who is going to do that for you, you know, and it depends on your values, I suppose. But I, in a lot of cases, like to shop around. I like to look at different reviews and I like to get a sense of, I don't want to be on a bus with like 40 other white people. You know, there are other options that are available to you than the like one canned thing. And It's nice to have that option, at least for me personally. That's something that I look for when I'm traveling that you're just not going to get staying on a compound where everything is already pre-decided for you, you know? And that's one of the things too about resort culture that you don't think about. So on resorts, drinks are often included, but if you're going on a cruise, cruises often don't include it. Or if you're thinking about things like like just thinking about cruises and that type of ecosystem as well, like you have to pay for Wi-Fi. You don't have the same amount of options with food. And so I'm a big Anthony Bourdain fan. That probably comes as no surprise. And he has a very good quote about how you think about food when you go on vacation. And one of the things that people often say to me when I say, like, I eat where the locals eat, like you just said, I look for places where there's nobody who looks like me. Like, I want to go somewhere where I feel kind of dumb because I look completely different from everybody there because I know that's where the good food is going to be. And it's going to be really cheap. And it is across the board. But a lot of people will say, well, what about food poisoning? I don't want to get food poisoning if I go to a place that serves like tourists that in theory, they go, well, that's, you know, a safe place for me. If I eat at the hotel, the hotel is going to make sure that I'm taken care of. And there's a great Anthony Bourdain quote about this, where he says, eating where the locals eat means that there's going to be a care and consideration into that food that you're not going to get in a tourist trap or a restaurant in, in the hotel, because those people are 
feeding their community members. They're feeding their neighbors. So if a stall in Thailand starts getting people super sick, well, that stall's not going to be around anymore. And that's somebody's individual livelihood. So they care a lot more about that than a hotel or somewhere like that, where you're just a name, you know, you're just a name on the ledger. You leave when you leave, you eat at the buffet or you don't, they don't care, right? Versus somebody who is putting time and care into building a reputation within that community. And I remember that's a very long version of a very short quote, but I remember reading that and it really resonated with me. And it's something that I tell people all the time when I'm traveling and when I talk to people about the type of travel that I like to do. Speaking of Anthony Bourdain, I guess I marvel the most at how he avoids airplane food so successfully. <laughs> okay. One thing on airplane food, I will say, airplane food is airplane food no matter where you go. It's not going to be the best quality. But North Americans get ripped off. Oh, my God. You take like a one-hour flight in Asia and you're getting a snack. There's drinks included. The quality and the quantity of food that you get for free on every flight is just it's offensive. <laughs> like, I feel like North Americans get ripped off so hard and like love us, but we have such a superiority complex over other parts of the world. And we're the ones consistently eating worse, like less natural food, paying more for it and getting way overcharged on things like flights, luggage, alcohol. Like I like to travel. I save money. <laughs> like I'm saving money when I go on vacation. Because I'm not staying on a resort and I'm eating where the locals eat and I'm not going out to drink at a bar every night. I'm going to 7-Eleven and getting a 9% tall boy for like a buck 50. You know what I mean? Because that's what the locals are doing. Yeah, absolutely. And it never used to be that way. And somewhere along the path, likely in the 90s, corporations began to really find new ways to gouge us. And it happens continually over and over again. To the point where, you know, I'm wandering around Europe and I say, you know, Europe never used to be cheaper than North America, and now it is. And I just realized, you know, if I play this right, I can spend two months here. Oh, and I did. Yeah, that's exactly what we did too. Like, I will say we spent more on this trip than we were planning to, but we did every tour. Like, we went on every tour. We checked out every ruin. The last time we were in Thailand in 2019, we spent a lot more time just in the city, hanging out, you know, that type of thing. And like you just said, if you're smart about it, you know, the most expensive part of your vacation is your flight. And that's been across the board. It's interesting that you mentioned that Europe isn't as pricey as you thought it would be because I had the same experience in Japan before we went to Japan. And even like since everyone that we talked to is like, oh, so expensive. Japan's so expensive. And it is not. I would say accommodations were probably a little bit pricier, but Japan is the first world country. You're staying at nicer spots. Even the Airbnbs were a little more expensive, but food is still super cheap. Alcohol is super cheap, you know, and I think if you go in there expecting to pay tourist prices, you're going to sort of naturally gravitate to places that, and I mean, Japan's sort of an outlier in that there isn't a lot of touristy stuff. After being in three countries that are very friendly to tourists, it's not that Japan's not friendly. It's just that their economy doesn't seem to rely on tourism as much. And so there's less English signage. It's a very different vibe. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it was way cheaper than I thought it was going to be. And like I said, I think the big money saver there was just because we ate at local restaurants. You know, we had to go to places we have to like point at the menu because you don't know what it is. And you hope Google Translate got it right. <laughs> yeah, it definitely, it's 
harder in some places it's in a place like japan to like have a vacation where you shut your brain off but it's actually i would argue that that place in particular is the opposite but it depends on the type of trip you want to have and it depends on the type of experience you want to have when you leave your home country right i think that that just really comes down to the individual and to what you want to become accustomed to and what you're willing to become accustomed to you said google translate now i was practicing my spanish in spain and it went so far and then i realized you know i really haven't downloaded google translate and there you were in japan using and singing the praises of google translate to bailing you out so for anybody who is worried about going to a country where they don't know the language how helpful is it it was super helpful i don't know how we would have gotten around japan specifically everywhere else was fine thailand cambodia as a quick aside cambodians speak better english than so many english speakers that i know exceptional english but in japan in particular google translate is a lifesaver i will say that especially in larger cities like tokyo and osaka there's a lot of english signage especially in the subways and things like that but it is a big boon to have cuz japanese is very hard to read i will say though going with a couple of phrases kind of like you said you were practicing your spanish like sumimasen which means excuse me or like little things like that like learning a couple of words goes a really long way and i think that it's interesting just to, i feel like i'm talking about japan a lot but i feel like there are some parallels around like people's fears about traveling to new countries and the politeness of japanese culture before we went a lot of the blogs i read online said things along the lines of japanese people are rude to you they don't want you there they're not going to you know be helpful to you and i had the total opposite experience i found that the japanese were among the friendliest like some of the friendliest people that we met and they are very very willing to help you learn their language and figure it out but they don't want to embarrass you they don't want to make you feel embarrassed because you don't know the language and conversely if they don't know english they get very like timid about it because they don't want to feel silly and they don't want to be embarrassed themselves and my source from this is some friends of ours who've lived in japan for like 20 years and kind of spoke to us about what it's like there but Yeah, Google Translate is a lifesaver. There is literally in my view no excuse to not go somewhere anymore because even if it's not like perfect, you know, like I definitely didn't order the bukake noodles for lunch. <laughs> it's like I don't think that's the same. But it really does make a difference and what we would do is we would take a picture of Google Translate on it like or we would write something out in English and then show them and it would show them the Japanese or read it back to them. And even if it's not getting the syntax perfectly right, it's a good way to kind of cross those linguistic barriers and be able to have discussions with people and to communicate. So yeah, definitely a big boon for sure. Don't know how well we would have done in Japan without it. And a really simple hack to, you know, getting outside the resorts is Airbnb because chances are good that there's going to be a local involved. And by the way, that local person will point you to the local establishments. I would say actually it's so Airbnb has really beefed up in the last couple of years. I mean like I haven't taken a trip since the pandemic started. That was my first time leaving Canada since 2020 like January 2020. So Airbnb has its listings of course, but it also has Airbnb experiences. So I would say some of the Airbnbs we stayed at, the people running them are a little more hands-on, some are a little more like turnkey, you know. It really depends. I like the turnkey a little bit more. Like I like renting an apartment or doing something similar, not like staying in like the main floor of someone's house. It, but it depends. But when you're doing more turnkey style, you don't have that opportunity and some people, especially if they're super like ESL, aren't as forthcoming with those suggestions. Some really are. 
But Airbnb Experiences has tons of that. And we booked a lot of our tours through Airbnb Experiences because it's such an easy way to tap into what locals in the area are offering and not rely so much on like big tour companies and things like that. So that was, again, sort of being a value-driven traveler, that was something that was really important to me. And the most memorable tours and experiences we had were ones that we booked through Airbnb experiences as well. So it definitely, it's, it's, the options are out there. You just have to be willing to do a little bit more legwork in order to find them for yourself. You may also like Supports Podcasting 2.0, so feel free to send us a boost if you are listening on a newer podcast app. If you don't have one, you can see a full list of them at newpodcastapps.com. So why are we so hooked on cruises and how do we get off the boat? Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Okay, I get the sense that the cruise, it feels like a step up for people from a resort. A resort, you're in a static place, you're on a compound. And I mean, a cruise is just a compound in the sea. But I think because it goes from place to place, it gives you the illusion of experiential travel in a way that a resort doesn't. A resort is, like you said, you go to the resort, you stay on the resort, you get wasted on the resort, you go home, right? Hopefully you're not too hungover on the trip home. But a cruise goes from place to place and they're typically a little bit longer than the average person's going to stay on a resort like most people at least in my experience most of the people that i know who go to a resort go for like a week most people aren't doing two weeks on a resort because let's face it it's boring it's boring to just get day drink. i mean listen i love a good day drink but very few people i know want to do that for two weeks solid and pay one or two hundred dollars per person to leave the resort for like six hours right a cruise, on the other hand, even though, like I said, it is a compound, you know, you stop at a couple of places. And I have very mixed feelings about, oh, you have eight hours in Rome, have fun. Like, you're not really going to get an authentic experience of a place when you're on a timer. You have to spend, you know, at least a day or two there, like at least like a one, like a whole day somewhere to at least get a sense of it. But like I said, I think that it's because you get a couple of different stops and it's the illusion of deeper travel while still getting funneled back into your safe, like white people boat, you know, <laughs> the white, the white people boat. 
like, I, and I mean, I'm sure that like folks of other, you know, like skin colors take cruises for sure. But when I look at pictures of cruises, like I looked at some data on cruises just to be prepared for this discussion. And it's, I don't know, anecdotally, it seems like it's a lot of North Americans who just want, like I said, the illusion of going somewhere fancy and not having to think about it. Kind of like a cruise is like a Contiki tour, but not for teenagers and on a boat, it feels like, you know. And not to be lost in that is that you get on a cruise, you may be going around the Mediterranean and visiting Portugal and Spain and France. But those are American chefs who are cooking American food for the people on the boat. That doesn't sound very good. Those are like three of the best countries to have a meal in. And you're getting like the watered down version of it. And like I can say from experience, like when we were in Thailand, there was a, a seafood place. We were on an island called Koh Phangan. And my husband was like, oh, it's got a crab on the outside. Like, let's go check it out. And every time we walked by, I was like, it's only tourists, dude. Like, it's just tourists in that restaurant. And he really wanted to try it. He's like, how bad could it be? And it was the worst food we had in Thailand was that restaurant. The fish was dry. Part of it was undercooked. The portions were way like North. They were like American sized portions, which is unusual for Asia, at least in my experience. And it was just bad because there's no love going into that food. Like we kind of talked about earlier, you know, that Anthony Bourdain quote and kind of what you're alluding to with like, you know, the chefs are there to cook for those tourists. They're not engaged in doing an amazing job. They know that the people eating there are a dime a dozen and they're just there to just pump out food as fast as possible and hopefully not get anybody sick. You know, not a great value prop. I've gotten this far in the conversation, and I'm really beginning to think that the idea and the premise of live like a local, travel outside of the resort, I think it does have a lot to do with food. And I wonder if we're just sort of divided into two groups where the people who don't you know, like food will just stay on the resort and they're good with that. Because what I see from you on your Instagram is that you go to Thailand, but you cook Thai at home. And I look at that and I go, I don't think I can get that in any restaurant where I live. And I, I myself bring home Spanish recipes all the time, and I'm cooking Spanish stews, and I'll make samarejo or gazpacho or Spanish tortilla gets made, which is a Spanish omelet. But all that happens all the time. So, you know, you bring that home with you. And I think the connection to food and travel is quite deep. I think that that's a really good assessment. And I really think this comes down to just a lack of exposure to other cultures. And North America in particular is very isolated. Like Winnipeg has more restaurants per capita. Like Winnipeg where we are has more restaurants per capita than anywhere else. It's for sure Canada. And I can count on my hands the amount of people that I know outside of my immediate friend group who would ever order from a Cambodian restaurant, right? Like people just aren't, we're not taught to be adventurous because we're not naturally exposed to as much type of food. And let's face it, the food that we eat in North America, like is good. Like I love a burger, but it's a lot of saturated fat. It's a lot of carbs. It's a lot of salt. It's a lot of addictive, basic flavors and combinations. Like, I'm sorry, like putting some applewood smoked cheddar on a burger, in my view, doesn't make it all that fancy. It just means you put a different cheese on it. It's still a burger at the end of the day. And the unfamiliarity with and kind of like what I was saying in Japan, like people don't want to seem silly, whether that's, you know, the Japanese sentiment or somebody who wants to take a vacation and have a break or go somewhere different, doesn't want to go there and feel embarrassed or stressed or not know how to do something. 
And food is a big part of that. It can be really intimidating to go somewhere and not know what's on the menu or to go somewhere. And like, I go to a stall in Thailand and I point at the thing and I just get what I get, right? Like I am not a huge fan of chicken feet as an example. I don't love chicken feet. I've had them several different ways. And I had like four or five times in Thailand, a soup just came with chicken feet in it. The picture didn't have chicken feet, but they're there. And if you're not willing to, or if you aren't used to having to push that boundary of your comfort zone, something like that can feel really overwhelming. And I know for this for a fact, people would look at my Instagram stories and go, oh God, I could never eat that. Or, oh, you ate like lung or liver or tripe. And like, that's what people eat over there, you know? And we're just not exposed to it. A good example of that actually is we have a couple that we know who had kind of invited themselves along on our trip with us. And it didn't wind up working out. It's probably for the best. We travel very differently. We had had them over and I said, okay, I'm going to share with you my travel Trello board because if you're doing multi-countries, you have to be organized, you've got a plan in advance, whatever have you. And our friend's wife was like, I want to show you the number one place I want to go in Vietnam. And she punches it into YouTube and why did, she didn't have the country right. It was in the Philippines, <laughs> which is not the same. But the place that she was most excited to go in Asia was a 14-story buffet. It was the world's largest buffet. And I was like, I'm not eating there. I'm not traveling halfway across the world to eat at a buffet. Like you said, like, I don't know. To, to sort of circle back to your point about buffets, I think buffets continue to exist because they give the illusion of choice while also allowing you to sort of stick within what makes you feel safe. Because like this chick is not going to the 14-story buffet and having like oxtail soup. You know, she's going there and she's like, there's a whole floor of cheese. That's too much cheese. We need that much cheese. So we watched the video and I pointed out that it was in the Philippines. And I said, this YouTuber has another video. He's like a food blogger where he's walking through Vietnam. And there's a couple of really famous food streets in Hanoi. And he's eating all these desserts and all the desserts are like their little custard. So it's like custard with jackfruit, custard with like the, like a red bean, like mash or whatever that they use over there and all these different types of desserts and custard. And we're watching the video and she's like, oh, that all just looks disgusting. When we go, we'll just go eat somewhere where there's normal food. And I couldn't help it, Matt. I was just like, bitch, that is normal food. Like That's what they eat there. Come on. It's intimidating for people. And the assumptions that we as North Americans make that our food is like the normal food, I think makes it harder for us to feel comfortable pushing those boundaries because we haven't had to. You know, if you haven't been able to afford to take a trip to Asia until you're in your 30s or your late 20s, you may have never experienced anything like a chicken foot in your soup. And yeah, I think there's just a lack of adventurousness there. What was the most challenging thing you ate? Ooh, I don't know. I don't really feel like I was super challenged on a lot of stuff. The only thing that I didn't eat a lot of was we were at this little stand-up bar in Kyoto and John just ordered, it was like a, like a grilled fish and it was like a whole grilled, like a little sardine. And it wasn't that they were bad. I just wasn't vibing with the texture at that point in time. So I had like one to be polite. I eat a lot of fish. I feel like that was the one that I just wasn't vibing with in that moment. I don't know if we really had anything that I didn't like. I'll eat anything once, <laughs> you know. We ate sea urchin, which was very interesting. I'd never had it before. Have you had urchin before? Yeah, outside the market in Cadiz, somebody was cutting it up nicely. 
Okay, I'm curious. Describe to me what eating urchin is like. Like, what does it taste like? What's the texture like for you? Not memorable. It just was fine. I just preferred the oysters. Oh, God. Well, oysters are in a whole different category. That's that's totally different. Yeah, I mean, it's got a nice texture. sits on the tongue. It's soft, and that's about it. I found it dissolves. It's almost like a muddy, like a very soft, like a pudding almost. Like you put it on your tongue and it kind of just dissolves right away, but it's got this like muddy, earthy texture to it. And it definitely took some getting used to. Like the first time I had it, I was like, oh, okay, so that's urchin. Let's have another one and just acclimatize my palate to it. You know, I'm a pretty big believer that if you are determined enough to like something, you can learn to like any food. You know, we do it with beer. We do it with coffee. We do it with lots of things here in North America. You can easily get over like looking at a piece of like liver or eating lung or something, you know, it's just a matter of wanting to, I think. More often than not, when I look at the cuisines between North America and anywhere else in the world, I will look at, you know, Italy or Spain where you'll get a tomato and it's just a tomato and they will cut it. And then you might put a little salt or olive oil on it and that's it. And in North America, everything has 50,000 ingredients. I'm not quite sure how we ever evolved into chicken parm casserole added cheese extra just piles of this ingredients thrown my birthday lunch was lamb and it had salt pepper and lamb and it was delicious so i'm not sure how we got here in north america by just constantly bombarding everything with ingredients and most of which are not healthy or natural coming back to talking about north american food and the basis of it like it's carby it's salty it's very basic in a lot of cases and i think that when you're starting from a foundation that's kind of bland, adding anything to it feels fancy. And we're used to things that fall into that category. So more cheese, more sauce, things like that versus like Thai, like the concept in Thai cooking is there are, I cannot remember what they are right now, but there's like the five major flavors. It's like salty, tangy, vinegary, sour, and like umami, I think are the five. And the way that they think about their cooking is every bite should be different. So you have your regular bowl of noodles with your stuff that goes in it and you're supposed to mix it all up. And then there's Priknam which is the vinegar soaked chilies. And it's just like a vinegar sauce. And there's another one that's a similar name and it's like fish sauce. So there's like fish sauce chilies and vinegar chilies and then just like a bunch of vinegar soaked jalapenos. And you pour a little bit onto different parts of your bite in order to enhance flavors and have an experience of a meal that is varied. And that is engaging with every bite that you take of it. And I think the North American tendency to just like throw a cheese on it or like more maple wood bacon or whatever have you just comes down to the fact that we're fundamentally afraid of mixing flavors and being uncomfortable with a lot of the food that we eat. I have a lot of cookbooks in my house. Some of them are Thai. Some are from places like I'm getting really into like Iranian and like Mediterranean food right now. I just got a tagine and I love it. But I have a book by a popular author. She runs a website and like Pinterest called Half-Baked Harvest. And her stuff is great. Don't get me wrong. It's super tasty, but it's all comfort food. It's like six cheese pasta or it's like, you know, something with like eight different, it's all cheese. It's all carbs. It's all cream. And like, I hate to say this, this is maybe like a feisty thing to say. And you can, but like, no wonder we're all getting fat over here. Like, all we're doing is eating processed, heavy, carb-loaded meals, and then we drive everywhere, you know? Like, the food that we ate in Asia, in Thailand and Cambodia and Vietnam was 
it was super noodle heavy. It was carbs every meal, you know, but the freshness of the food was completely different than what I'm used to here. And then go to Japan and that's just like a whole other universe. You know, like the quality of the food there is so good. The freshness of the food and everybody in Japan, especially they walk. I read while we were there that the average Japanese person walks 7,000 steps a day. And that's like living in Tokyo. You're just, or like any major city, you just walk to the store, you walk to the restaurant, you walk to meet your friends, you walk to the subway. And the way that they think about eating is not just like a meal to get through. It's these like long drawn out. I'm sure you probably saw some of that in Europe. I, there was someone on Instagram I saw went to Italy last year and she was saying as a solo traveler, she really struggled with that because in Italy, I'm just going from her experience. She said, you know, you go and you sit and it's like an hour, hour and a half. You're not there to blow through something or just like, you know, consume it as fast as you can. You're supposed to enjoy it. You're supposed to take your time with it. And I get the sense that that's something that comes through in other cultures that is just kind of missing from a lot of what we have here. And there are exceptions, of course, but I feel like a lot of North American culture is just how many addictive elements can you throw onto this basic item in order to make it seem palatable? Shove it in your mouth and go watch TV or scroll on TikTok. You know what I mean? The two things that I didn't see on my trip were overweight people. You just don't notice them. The only overweight people are other tourists from North America. That's it. <laughs> yeah. It was, yeah, the locals, I, it was extremely rare. And I, like I said, that's a very, like, I am always hesitant to say that out loud, but a fact is a fact. And, you know, we can talk about diet and culture and body acceptance. I don't think any of that stuff is bad or taboo, but I do think it's useful to look at how other cultures approach things like day-to-day -day lifestyle in terms of walking, building for accessibility and walking and healthy lifestyles and the type of food that they eat. The same article that I was reading about Japanese folks walking 7,000 steps a day. There is a city in Japan. I forget what it's called now. It's not one of the major ones. But they were like the leading in the country for uh, stroke. And people there were dying at a pretty rapid rate. They had the highest stroke in the country, like rates of stroke in the country. And the mayor of the city was like, what can we do to help people be healthier? So they installed 100 walking paths in the city did a big promotion to get people out walking, go out with your friends, walk with your family, walk your dog, whatever. And this city now boasts the highest like longevity, like the longest lifespans in Japan. They completely turned it around by just focusing on walking and making their city more walkable and encouraging people to get just, you know, it's like low impact exercise. We don't have a culture of that here. Our North American eating culture has actually devolved into where the corporations have defined it. So you go to a restaurant, the first thing they do is they'll put a napkin on the table and give you the menu, and they'll ask for a drink. Now, that part is not different. In fact, in Spain, you have to be ready with your drink or they will scowl at you because, dime, you know, cerveza, vino, whatever it is that you got to get moving. Where it breaks down is once the food arrives in North America, there's always somebody who will ask you how the first few bites taste, which is part of the process. It's sort of the beginning to move you along. And really, the process, they want to flip the table at a lot of restaurants, and they want you out. And in Spain and a lot of parts of Europe, you sit there and nobody will ask you to leave. You can sit there for four or five hours and carry on and go right through dinner if you want. And in fact, if you ask for the check, they're pretty slow about bringing it because they assume you're also living quite slowly. Mm-hmm. 
I will say streetcar culture, of course, is very different. You're eating on the street and you're kind of just going on and doing your thing. But I had very similar experiences in the sit-down restaurants that we went to when we were traveling. I really noticed that a lot in Japan, especially. And I think just because their culture is so different, like Thailand is very tourist focused. So if you go somewhere and you aren't looking for places that are more local focused, like you're going to have that experience. Someone will come around, someone will ask you that type of thing. There's that like the turnover. They're looking for that turnover versus the leisurely experience of enjoying a meal that is more common in other places for sure. And yeah, definitely. That's a good point. I don't know that I got asked that maybe more than once over the course. And I think it was actually at that touristy place on Copanyan. Yeah, that's kind of it. You know, that's so funny. I hadn't thought about that. Where's your next trip going to be? Probably back to Japan. <laughs> I think, I don't know. We're considering a few options. I would love to go back to Asia. I just, the food there is so good. So probably we're thinking maybe South Korea. And then spending like a more staycation-y type in Japan. We jumped around a lot. I would love to spend more than like a week in each place. So maybe spend two weeks in Tokyo, go up to like, like I really loved Osaka. <laughs> the reason that I say it that way, when we were in Tokyo, we were drinking in an area called Golden Guy, which is this like very old part of the town, part of the, part of the city. And the bartender was from Osaka. And he asked where we were from. And I said, you know, we've been to blah, 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 Osaka. And he was like, Osaka. And I'm not sure if you've seen Brooklyn Nine-Nine, but there's a scene in Brooklyn Nine-Nine where one of the characters' son's name is Nikolaj. And they go back and forth. It's like, Nikolaj. He's like, Nikolaj. He's like, Nikolaj. And that was me doing this, but two shots of tequila over the course of an afternoon. So the pronunciation for Osaka is like burned into my brain at this point. But kind of bringing this back full circle. Those are the types of memorable experiences you are never, ever, ever going to get on a resort or on a cruise because you're not going to talk to human beings who aren't paid to be nice to you. That bartender didn't have to talk to us, but he did. And we had this wonderful, memorable experience as a result of it that you're just not going to get if you go for like a pre-packaged, you know, or a compound type. I don't even know if I call it like a trip. It's just like an away time. You know what I mean? Allison, thanks so much for doing this. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Happy to be here. My thanks to Allison for joining me on the show. Allison runs Starling Social, a company based in Winnipeg, Manitoba, that can help your company grow your social reach. If you'd like to partner with her, I've left links in the show notes. This episode was produced by Evan Serminski and edited by Mithun Varma and built for your ears by everybody at the Sound Off Media Company. It is your favorite girl. That's right. It's the Ali Mars, the one and the only. Everyone else just ain't me. I am the host of Welcome to Mars, a lifestyle podcast where nothing is off the table. I have come a long way from sex and dating and have transformed the new vibe to all things lifestyle. We still talk sex, but I'm more interested in the journey, where people have come from, how they made it, and where they're going. Subscribe or follow to a brand new look and a brand new era. Welcome to Mars. Subscribe or follow on Apple, Spotify, Google, or at theallymars.com. Because even with the new look, I'm still that same bitch you love to hate. 
The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jag and Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network.